0: I remember the rumbling it felt like a freight train
1: and it goes on for a while maybe 15 tornado tore through our
0: small town like a giant weed whacker we lost a lot of trees we lost there were 23 trees just in the on my block this is design
1: safe radio where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us Design Safe Radio, the show that talks about everything nature has to throw at us and how scientists are working to make our society more resilient. I'm your host, Dan Zahner, from the Natural Hazards Engineering Research Infrastructure Network Coordination Office at Purdue University. And this is Design Safe Radio. We have fallen heirs to the most glorious heritage a people ever received, and each one must do his part if we wish to show that the nation is worthy of its good fortune. Theodore Roosevelt. Today we've got the privilege of talking with Joe Fargioni, who is the science director of the Nature Conservancy's North American region, and his research seeks ways to balance human energy and food demands with environmental conservation, including appropriate siting of new energy development and new sources for conservation funding, including compensatory mitigation payments, carbon offsets, and creating markets that value nature's benefits. He's from my hometown, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he lives with his wife and kids. Um, Welcome, Joe. Thanks for uh, being with us today. And we actually get to talk in person, unlike most of the interviews, so this is a special treat. Uh, Really glad to have you here today.
0: Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about your your background, kind of how you got into um, your chosen field of science. I always love to hear... Uh, the inspirations that people had coming up and growing up um, is backgrounds vary widely.
0: Yeah, I uh, I grew up going to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in northern Minnesota, and I fell in love with the outdoors and uh, was interested in how nature works and decided to pursue a career in natural science. And I ended up studying plant ecology um, in my both my undergraduate work and also uh, as for my PhD.
1: Awesome. I'm just taking notes here of things I want to remember to circle back on. Um, <laughs> I've got a hilarious story about some times in the Boundary Waters that we may have to talk about <laughs> offline. All right. <laughs> remember a trip to Cache Lake when I was in Boy Scouts that uh, was especially fun. <laughs> so I definitely got some some fond memories of that, that yeah. wilderness area up there. So you have uh, some some family background in science as well or was it mostly that that wilderness experience that really just kind of sparked that fire for you
0: uh yeah i just like spending time outdoors and got interested in uh nature conservation and uh wanting to understand um how we could be good stewards of um and and just decided to study that and and um have you know haven't regretted it
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely that's a noble pursuit and and i'm all for that that's great um so where'd, where'd you go to school and do your your research um and uh grad work
0: i uh did my undergraduate at hampshire college uh which is in western massachusetts and um that that school has a, a unique program where you kind of create your own major and oh, encourages cool. you to Um, to learn by doing in your field, so I got to do some some uh, exciting field work there, uh, both around Western Massachusetts and um, a little bit of work in on the Caribbean island of Dominica. Oh,
1: really? Awesome.
0: Um, so I spent a couple some time uh, over a couple summers there, uh, looking at epiphytic orchids in citrus trees that wow uh, were. Growing in citrus orchards down there. So epiphytes are plants that live on other plants. So, uh, so that's like most orchids.
1: Very so, cool. So it's got the the, <laughs> the limits of my knowledge of orchids is Mother's Day. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how those those plants grow and how you uh, would conserve uh, a resource like that?
0: Um, sure. So I was interested in a you know a basic ecological question of how there could be so many species that it could all coexist. And so, um, the orchid family is the largest family of flowering plants. 75% of them are epiphytic. Really? They, uh, they have tiny, tiny seeds that are, uh, just, you know, like a speck of dust. And so they can, um, float <clears throat> on the air really far ways and they end up, um, uh, landing on tree branches. And then they, um, they only germinate if they're infected by um, mycorrhizal fungi. That Whoa. Uh, so they don't have a lot of um, resources in the seed because it's so light to kind of to grow roots, and so they have, form a symbiotic relationship with the uh, with fungi. Wow! And so it takes kind of special conditions for them to become established. And so one thing is. Looking at was how there could be so many different species all sort of competing for a uh, similar environment on trees, and I looked at whether some of them were growing on bigger branches or smaller branches or towards the edge of the tree or more in the shadier parts of the tree or or in um, on parts of the tree that had more organic matter built up on the branch. Um, so that we saw we did see some uh, what scientists call niche differentiation in the orchids but um so that was really fascinating work to kind of look at um nature from um what you know how it basic how it works standpoint but I, um as i spent more time in my field i wanted to do work that was more applied and so i ended up um taking that knowledge and experience and and trying to apply it to the field of conservation
1: excellent so that led to um so some more research before your current position or uh, did
0: that lead to where you're at now well so i uh for my phd i did my phd at the university of minnesota uh Go gophers the, <laughs> uh the ecology department there and i uh looked at the effects of biodiversity loss in prairie oh, um, really? and so they have some experiments there where they manipulate the number of species in prairie and then measure a whole bunch of different things so i was looking at uh how the more diverse prairies are more resistant to invasion by weeds and uh trying to understand some of the mechanisms behind that so um in the prairies i worked in as in most uh you know terrestrial systems in in temperate climates it's primarily limited by nitrogen and so their plants are competing for nitrogen and we looked at how um different plants may uh a more diverse system has more complete use of that resource over time and at different depths, and so that sort of makes it harder for other species to invade in that into that yeah. system and uh, because there's less available resource for them so part just trying to understand some of the mechanisms that uh you know healthy diverse communities can be more resilient, more resistant to invasion.
1: Very cool. Where, where did you do your prairie research? What part of the state did you uh, do that?
0: So that I was working at Cedar Creek uh, Ecosystem Science Reserve. It's about 45 minutes north of the Twin Cities.
1: Oh, excellent. I was going to say, I, so I grew up in the Twin Cities as well. I'm trying to think if I ever went there when I was a kid. Uh, my mom listens to the show. She'll probably, she'll probably correct me if we did or not. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Um So after your PhD, um, then then what happened next?
0: um, Well, so I was looking at uh, at, uh, work as uh, as a faculty researcher and also in conservation. And so I did a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. So I was there for two years, and I was looking in the the Chihuahuan Desert grassland, and we had an experiment that... Hmm looked at the effect of elevated nighttime temperatures um, on that, the plant communities there. So it's at a, a boundary where there's um, both uh, Chihuahuan desert grassland and also the northern edge of uh, Trublin, like creosote, and those warmer nighttime temperatures, which is what's happening with climate change. The warming is actually disproportionately at night. Um mm so uh, so it's about twice as fast as warming at nighttime as it is daytime really Um, huh I didn't know that so it's like right so the sun's it's like a blanket you know the greenhouse gases are like a blanket and it's the sun's not hotter but so the daytime highs aren't as, as you know don't increase as much but that that Blanket really has a big effect at night. Uh, Um, Ah, trapping that radiating heat, trapping
1: it. Okay, that makes sense.
0: So in places where uh, there are species that are limited by freezing tolerance at their northern range limit, uh, which is was a hypothesis for creosote, we thought we might see some responses of um, shrubs expanding north into grassland. Uh, Oh, okay. So you're seeing
1: some species that are that don't don't like the colder temperatures moving further further north as mm -hmm. those. Temperatures warm up, and are you seeing similar species who are more adapted to the cold um, receding in those areas?
0: Um, well, I mean, it's a, uh, the Chihuahuan Desert grassland. I don't wouldn't know that uh, most of the species aren't necessarily adapted to the cold, but they um, but they can be outcompeted if the oh, okay. system sort of switches to shrubland. Where interesting, yeah,
1: that's some pretty fascinating research areas.
0: Thanks. So then, uh, and then uh, I was briefly faculty at Purdue. All right. And, uh, and then um, I ended up leaving academia um, and, and wanting to move back to Minneapolis for personal reasons. And mm-hmm. so I was fortunate enough to find a job with the Nature Conservancy. That's great. And uh, um, that was, so uh, I've been there for a decade. It's been. Wow. <laughs> uh, um, and it's been a lot of fun.
1: Cool. So tell me a little bit about the Nature Conservancy. What's the the mission and uh, a little bit about the organization?
0: Yeah, so we have uh, a big mission. It's to conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. Uh, We are probably the largest environmental NGO in the world. We have chapters in all 50 states. We work in over 35 countries around the world. Oh, wow. Um, We started uh, about... 65 years ago uh as the first land trust so we have a, a we t- have a non-confrontational um cooperative approach uh and we there was some land that was up for sale that had uh, some rare plants and was important for biodiversity and we said well instead of trying to fight the developer in court or something we uh what if we just raised some money and bought the land? And so that oh, was the, cool. so the Nature Conservancy started uh, about sixty-five years ago as the first land trust. So yeah, so when they they started, there was some land that was up for development had some rare plants, and instead of fighting with the developer, for example, in court, we said, well, what if we just raised some money and bought it? So that um, has proven to be a really successful model, um, and. Uh, we've you know grown a lot since then and done a lot of uh, protected a lot of land that way and we've branched out into a whole bunch of other things recognizing that um, there's a lot more conservation that needs to happen than can be afforded by just land acquisition so we also worked uh, to help to pioneer conservation easements so so the private landowner retains the they're all their property rights except the right to subdivide and, and develop it so um, hmm. folks that own forests keep it as forests can continue their management um, or rangeland can continue uh, to own and manage as rangeland but then the the um, the rights to develop that or convert that to cropland for example then we purchase so that would be about often about forty percent of the co- the cost of the land yeah so that can be a, a a great benefit for the landowner to receive that um, that payment, and then you know essentially they're getting paid for that ecosystem service that they're providing to everyone else by providing yeah. habitat, um, clean air, and clean water with their um, their the native habitat that they're retaining, um, but they still get some financial compensation out of it. So um, that's been a really uh, successful approach and um, uh, and and so we've branched out uh, as an organization working in oceans and freshwater and on climate change. So, which you know, climate change is a, an existential threat uh, to our mission, and so um, so we need to uh, in transition our uh, energy sector to zero carbon energy and to become more efficient. Uh, and have energy conservation, yeah. but we also need to uh, look at the role that the land sector can contribute. So, um, I don't know. Most people don't know that about ten to fifteen percent of our emissions uh, of greenhouse of carbon dioxide globally are from naturally e- the conversion of natural ecosystems. So that's mostly tropical deforestation. Mm. And conversion of peatlands, so uh, peatlands when they're drained oh yeah the uh, the soil is mostly undecomposed organic matter, and it begins to decompose so
1: hmm.
0: so yeah, so as you may recall from your high school science class or star trek uh, <laughs> life, life on earth is carbon based, so when you uh, you look at a tree it's about or any plant it's about fifty percent carbon, and so when we cut down. Uh, rainforests um, and convert those to pasture. We're emitting large amounts of carbon mm. into the atmosphere, and the same thing happens uh, if you think about soils. Um, soils are, mo- you know, mostly the parts of the plants that didn't decompose, and in places that are waterlogged, um, there's very little decomposition that can happen, and so uh, hardly anything decomposes, and you have these um, these peat peatlands that are made up mostly of undecomposed plants. So those are also about 50% carbon. And as soon as you dra- wow. drain those, that all um, gets emitted to the atmosphere. And those peatlands can be, um, you know, anywhere from a few feet deep to, um, you know, 30, 50 uh, really? feet deep. Wow. And just all um all carbon that's Mm -hmm. been being stored there and do you also
1: look at the the impact to um you know flooding of communities and, and other kind of erosion type effects of draining those wetlands as well
0: um yeah so that's also an issue with um especially when you get into mangroves and uh coastal areas that where they can provide some coastal defense that uh there's a lot of carbon stored in the sediments of uh of coastal wetlands whether that be Mangroves, or seagrasses, or uh, tidal wetlands like salt marsh.
1: Mm. Interesting. So, um, what kind of uh, research are you doing as part of this this mission and 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 education as well? What kinds of things mm-hmm. are you doing to um, you know bolster that that scientific defense against all these different threats? Um,
0: so. I get to work on a really wide range of research projects, um, which is fun and one of the ones i'm most excited about is we're, our work on what we're calling natural climate solutions mm. and so that's a a broad uh, encompasses a lot of different um, a lot of different things so it's not just forests it's forests and grasslands and wetlands and agriculture lands and it's looking at uh, protection. Of natural habitat and restoration and also improved management so when you look across all of those uh, different opportunities um, we they add up they really add up so we looked globally we had a, a paper published recently that looked at this potential of natural climate solutions globally and we estimate that between now and 2030 that about 37% of all the emissions reduction that we need uh, to stay on track to keep warming below two degrees, we could get from natural climate solutions. Oh really, wow. So that's...
1: And what that two degree threshold, we hear about that a lot. What's so mm -hmm. important about that, uh, keeping it under two degrees?
0: Um, Well, so if the the risk of um, significant impacts from climate change, including sea level rise, um and impacts related to uh you know direct mortality from heat waves in cities and also uh negative impacts of temperature on crops, uh those all go up a lot. Uh, mm, the risks okay. of all those things increase dramatically once you get over two degrees. So um it's a little bit arbitrary, but it's essentially um you put a line somewhere. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's you know it's it's uh it's just you know it's it's like if you're gonna buy insurance, uh, you know you you want to mitigate risk, and so this is a you know basically it's it becomes you know too risky uh, once you get over two degrees. So we we'll try to, um, you know, the investments that we're able to make today that can help us avoid that threshold. It's kind of like insurance where we're trying to uh, help address that that risk.
1: Very cool. So, how do you test these mitigation methods um, that you're researching?
0: So, um, we for these projects they're, they're syntheses. So we have a big team. Um, we have on uh, our recent paper uh, that looked at natural climate solutions in the United States. There are 38 co-authors. Oh wow! And so, um, so we so that's been a, that's part of the. Uh, you know the the what makes this fun is it's very collaborative. I think I think a lot of people have an idea of a scientist by themselves in their lab, with their <laughs> lab coat, yeah. and um, it's actually a very collaborative process. Um, so uh, we brought in experts in wetlands and forests and grasslands and and got all of them uh, to to kind of chime in and contribute with their understanding, and we synthesized literature and we did. Um, New analyses, a lot of uh, analyses with um, computer mapping with GIS. Oh, very cool! Uh, to help us understand the potential for, uh, for example, for reforestation. So we did some mapping mm. of places. You can they have remote sensing from satellites that show uh, the current distribution of forest, and we compared that with what where we think the uh, historic extent of forests were. So which places used to be forests but aren't currently, and then we um, removed things like roads and cities that prob- that aren't going to be reforested and mm-hmm. and try to make an estimate of the potential um, you know how many acres are out there where we could uh, potentially be reforested
1: interesting so do you do, you do similar work with um, those kind of coastal wetlands as well and, and maybe study some of the impacts on uh, infrastructure or like we were talking before uh, you know the people who are in the floodplain that probably shouldn't be um, do you do some kind of educational testing, we'll say, of like, hey, this is what would happen in the event of climate change. Maybe we should think about, you know, restoring these wetland areas. Do you do you work along those lines as well?
0: Um, so one of the things that we've looked at with natural climate solutions, there's some recent work. Uh, uh, my collaborator Kevin Kroger from the U.S. Geological Survey has a, a recent paper that looked at. Uh, tidally restricted wetlands, and so a lot of the places along the shore um, we've put roads and or railroads or uh, otherwise you know it's built up uh, stuff along the shore and <clears throat> there's places where that has essentially cut off uh, salt marshes from the ocean oh yeah, and then they ha- they uh, are no- then they're no longer salty. So right. the fresh is still coming in, and it kind of you know turns into a a freshwater wetland rather than a salt marsh. And um, so you might think, well, what's the big deal about that from a climate change standpoint? And um, the really interesting thing is that um, that when it's salty, there are no methane emissions. Oh, And, and, wow. when, it, and when it becomes freshened, then uh, essentially that um, the microbes that produce methane can become active, and you have some pretty significant methane emissions. And methane is a greenhouse gas, and it's it's more potent than carbon dioxide. It's about forty-six times more oh. potent than um, than carbon dioxide, and so that um, that adds up. And so, actually, just by um, you know taking a Essentially, reconnecting tidally restricted uh, wetlands and opening that back up. So, so you might have a road with you know a little uh, small pipe, small diameter pipe that uh, as an outlet for mm-hmm. the wetland. And essentially, if you you know open that up, uh, fill the bridge, and make a little stream, so the tide can get in and out, and then that uh, restores that. Whole wetland to its natural salty state and mm. reduces methane emissions.
1: Very cool. One so, of our um, our test facilities in the the research network I'm a part of is uh, Oregon State University's Hinsdale Wave Research Lab, and they mm. do a lot of work with coastal erosion and tsunami and things like that. It would be really interesting to do some projects there with some mitigation methods for um, tidal wetlands and you know do some structural testing and mm-hmm. education of you know maybe building codes or local uh, infrastructure interested parties that kind of thing that might be some cool testing to do
0: yeah it's um it, uh, it's pre- it's pretty interesting to think about how those think you know how those things intersect because there's biogeochemistry and methane emissions and then but there's also civil engineering and how you design the built infrastructure to be compatible with that natural infrastructure so it's a um, pretty interesting area where there's a lot of room for improvement i
1: think yeah absolutely and and one of the things i've been learning a lot through these these interviews the past uh few months is that wherever you can find uh the intersection of uh areas of study you find huge innovations right and uh, i think you're at one of those kind of those crossroads of 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 climate science, of of biology, of plant science, of coastal science and engine and civil engineering as well. So it's it's a really cool um niche to be in.
0: Yeah. So um so we've looked across uh all of these opportunities for natural climate solutions and and so I think people understand okay let's not you know if we don't cut down forests and restore forests there's some carbon there and and um and we can restore wetlands and and uh keep that the, that soil carbon in the wetlands and and reduce methane um uh, in these in these salt marshes um you know one one approach that people uh, might not recognize is the potential in in row crop agriculture oh really so there's a couple of really uh, interesting opportunities there one is um improving the soil carbon the amount of carbon in the soil Hmm. and and basically when we convert uh, natural ecosystems to row crop we've lost you know most of those places have been in production for a hundred years you know or so in the U.S. and and they've probably lost 30 percent of their soil carbon oh really and so that can be built back up and one of the ways we can do that is with cover crops so oh, okay. the way carbon gets put into the soil is through plants. They photosynthesize, um, hmm. take it out of the atmosphere, and and then um, when they die or as root exudates, the, um, they are putting carbon back into the soil. And so um, right now we're only using that for part of the growing season because, uh, you know, there's a main crop and we harvest it, but there's other species that, uh, you know, can grow during the shoulder season and so you're just essentially extending the growing season adding more carbon back into the soil.
1: Interesting and is, does that also have some beneficial effects to, to crop production in addition? It sure to does the yeah
0: so um, we're working the Nature Conservancy's a technical advisor on this uh, project with the so- the called the soil health partnership and it's a um collaboration with the national corn growers association Mm. uh and there's a lot of great benefits of cover crops um so it builds up soil carbon which helps with water holding capacity um it can increase yields and over time it can help retain nutrients which Mm. may uh make your soil more fertile and and uh have farmers have to add less fertilizer and oh that's great so um so it reduces
1: costs to the to the farmer as well yeah
0: so that's so there's some costs of uh you know of planting the cover crops and the idea is that um over time as you build improve the fertility and resilience of the soil that the expectation is that can be recouped and so Mm. that's and so part of that ongoing work is to um to test that so we've got uh, 110 farmers signed up doing strip trials oh, wow. as part of that partnership and collecting data on both uh, um, what's happening with the soil and how that soil fertility may be changing and also um, agronomic data to like be able to look at the yields and wow. see see uh, where the what benefits we may get from cover crops mm-hmm. from a, a yield standpoint and because that's really the Uh, that's what's going to drive adoption is if there's benefit. And so that's what's really great about these natural climate solutions is in many cases, it's very much a a win-win. So, um, you know, when you're improving efficiency or improving bottom line, uh, while at the same time uh, having really important benefits for both climate mitigation, but also other environmental outcomes. So for cover crops, they take up nitrogen at a time when it, might be lost, other like over the winter when it might leach out of that system, and so that's good for mm. the farmer because they're making that they're retaining those nutrients to use for uh, crops the next season. But it's I don't also have to put
1: down as much nitrogen-based fertilizer the next season.
0: Uh, yeah, over time that'll build up the uh, make their soils more fertile, but it also uh, is is preventing that from entering waterways as nutrient pollution. Oh, right. So, yeah. So that's a big another big reason. Uh, does it also
1: have uh erosion benefits, uh, prevention benefits? To-
0: it does help with erosion, yep. Yeah. So um yep, so there's a good wow. there's a whole bunch of uh uh benefits to cover crops, you know, from water quality, soil erosion, uh soil soil health, including soil carbon, um and soil structure and the soil biota, you know, the um soil biota soils are alive and so there's you know um there's microbes and
1: yeah that's something you never really think about like as a you know non-farmer non-soil scientist like yeah soil is a living system there's all sorts of you know bacteria and insects and invertebrates and all sorts of things in there
0: yeah yeah and so that's um and some you know some of which are uh helping the um you make crops and some of which may damage your crops so you want right. to so it's, so it's about keeping that that soil healthy and so we so it's an exciting area it's, there's a lot of interest in it right now because there is such a great potential um, for these multiple benefits
1: yeah
0: uh, so that but it's uh, there's definitely a lot of uh, need for more science and research to make sure that people understand um, the best way to to use them to get the most benefit
1: definitely that's really, really interesting. I'm going to have to look into that more. I've got some, some family who are farmers, so they'll be eager to hear about that as well. Yeah. was um, I mean, Just just a couple of things before we, we take off here. I know we've got um, we've got a lot going on this evening. Um, prep for uh, your, your time here tomorrow on campus. And just wanted to ask um, about a personal experience you had with a natural hazard. I, love, I like asking about this to all my guests because everybody's got a story. And uh, I sound like you've got a, a pretty good one <laughs> from uh, a few few years back.
0: Um. Yep. Yeah, you know, as we mentioned earlier, I live in Minnesota. Our home was hit by a tornado, so um, I wasn't I wasn't home at the time. Um, but yeah, we had uh, the damage wasn't too bad. We we had uh, we put up a, a fence, and it only lasted two days. So <laughs> put it back up. At, um, we did. You know, one of the um, Uh, We lost a lot of trees. We lost, there were 23 trees just in the, on my block uh, in the city that were in, just in the boulevard trees and front yard trees. So we went from kind of living in a, um, you know, sort of a closed canopy forest uh, to living (laughs) in the prairie, basically (laughs) um, lost all our trees. And when the guys, one of the guys from the city was there chainsawing uh, trees, our, our neighbors had a couple of big pine trees that, um, they landed on our car. And, uh, and so the guy from the city was saying that our car almost had chainsaw damage because he didn't know it was under there. <laughs> it was so buried by the trees. He couldn't, could hardly see it. Um, so fortunately, uh, uh, you know, no one was hurt. So
1: Yeah. That's, that's a good, good thing about, uh, about that. I'm glad to hear that no one was is- no one's hurt and, you know, uh, no no huge major structural damage to the house. That's always good. Yeah. How big of a tornado was it, do you know?
0: Oh, gosh. Was it maybe an F3? I don't know. Whew.
1: That's big enough.
0: It was, yeah. So it's, um, it went for over a mile and it, you know, it, it happens pretty fast. It moves at uh, 40 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. Going. And so um, it, yeah it demolished some you know houses and um most of the i mean in minnesota everyone has a basement so that's good
1: yeah Um, i remember as a kid playing risk in the basement whenever the tornado siren would go off (laughs) stick hunker down there for a couple hours and once things blow over (laughs) yeah cool so um before before we go i just want to give you a chance to to let people know where to find you online um to to follow along with the, the great work you guys are doing
0: Sure, um, I recommend people check out the Nature Conservancy's website, which is nature.org. Pretty easy to remember.
1: I think I can remember that one.
0: <laughs> and we also have uh, there's a a science blog called Cool Green Science, um, which has a lot of great stories about about uh, our work and the science angle on that. So those are the the best places to check out the Nature Conservancy's work.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for for your time and your great insights on climate and all the different interrelated um, sciences that you you work on. And I just really appreciate uh, you being here today and uh, great to meet you.
0: Thanks Thanks for listening to today's
1: episode of Design Safe Radio. This show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation and NERI. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so we can improve the show. These also help others find our episodes in iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and your support. You can find out more about NERI at designsafe-ci.org or on Facebook at DesignSafe Radio or on Twitter at NERI DesignSafe. Next week on the show, we have Benjamin Preston from the RAND Corporation. We'll talk about the economic side of natural hazards and how science is influencing public policy and infrastructure investment. Thanks for your listening.